Good morning. Nice to see everyone. No, no Broncos today, right? So y'all are like, yeah, I may as well go to church. Let me tell you, this is going to be far more exciting and life-giving than the Broncos this year. I can't promise that every year, you know, but uh, it's a pretty low bar for me today. So it's great to see everyone. How are the bleachers doing today? Got, a, got lots of folks in the bleachers keeping your distance. I like it. I like it a lot. So it's good to have everyone. If you're a guest this morning, thank you for being here. My name is Ryan, and I am the lead minister here at Crossroads Church which just means it's my privilege to get to serve our volunteers and our staff as we really create this space of hope and to be a part of this journey that our church has been on. If you are a guest today, um, thanks for being here. If you'd like to connect, if you have some questions about our community of faith, our values, the way in which we function, I'd love to have that conversation. Love to meet you right there inside the program is my cell phone number. Uh, you can uh, reach out to me, send me a text message, and we'll get it set up. I'd love to do that. I just had coffee this week with some folks who've been here a few times, and I'm not going to say who they are, but I'm looking at them right now, so it's wonderful. It wasn't so bad. They came back, so that's nice, um, but, uh, and they actually bought, so I appreciate that. Thank you very much, um, but uh, you don't have to buy. You don't have to buy when we go. Uh, it'll be fun, and I uh, would love to do that. love to share a bit of my story, my journey, as well as hear yours. So we're in this series called TED Talks, the Book of Lasso. If you're a guest today, first time tuning in, first time in the room, we do teach from the Bible, we're just creative, okay? So we, I'm going to get to the Bible today, I promise, all right? I'm going to even give you a little bit of a background in the Bible, all right? So we look for wisdom from Scripture. I will get there. Hang in there with me for just a few moments, right, uh, as we get going. But we're talking about really um, some some wonderful characters and lessons we can learn from them that intersect with some of our uh, really beautiful themes in the Christian tradition. And we're looking at this show, Ted Lasso, and some of the characters in it. Because the, the characters that touch our hearts do so because we connect with them, we resonate, we see something of ourselves in them, right? And so really great story narratives are powerful. And that's what makes, quite honestly, so much of our Scripture is powerful because they're narratives, they're stories that we can connect with, we can relate to. Uh, we want to maybe uh, strive to become like some people in, in these stories that we have, right? So let me ask you a question right now. Think about it. Please don't say it out loud because you might be with the person, and I don't want to have to create more of an awkward conversation at lunch, right? But I want you to think about this question. Who is the most frustrating person in your life? Y'all are still looking at me. <laughs> I don't know. Some of you did kind of look around. Some of you just reached over, grabbed the hand, squeezed it a little bit tighter. Don't you even think about it being me, right? Who is the most frustrating person in your life? And hold on to that face for a second. <laughs> and then let me ask you this question. Why do they frustrate you so much? What about that person just gets at your goat? I don't know what that means. I heard somebody say it one time. And they were older than me, so I think it's a good thing to say, got me at my goat. I don't know. But what is it about that person that frustrates you? Why do they irritate you so much? Why are they like that little piece of sand in your slipper, right? When you're walking along, they got to get rid of that, right? Why is that? Think about it. Here's what I think, right? Now, just think at a big, like that person that frustrates you, right? That person that irritates you. Here's why at a real kind of philosophical level. They frustrate you because they bring something out of you because they produce something in you, and that is a tension. 
right? That is a tension. So frustration is our emotional response to a tension that we experience, that we want resolved quickly, right? We want this tension resolved, and, and so we feel frustrated. We feel irritated. Now, what produces that frustration in us? Here's the most common thing that frustrates people, okay? Everybody in the room, you've experienced this. You and I feel frustrated by a person when they are right and we are wrong. Wrong, right? When they're right and we're wrong and we know it, that's frustrating, and the more you love that person, the more frustrating it is, right? The more intimate you are with that person, the more frustrating. And, and you have that moment where you're like absolutely certain you're right. You're frustrated because you think you're right. You think they're wrong. But your frustration level goes up to like DEFCON 10 when you, it hits you. Oh, no, I'm wrong and they're right, right? So we experience that frustration, right? And there's because there's that tension there. Now, what do I do with that, right? Another way in which we all experience that tension that leads to frustration is that when people, and even ourselves, don't live up to our expectations. How many of y'all are parents in the room? Raise your hand up nice and high. This is why you get frustrated with your children, because you have expectations, and every now and then, not often, your children don't meet them. Now, the problem could be your expectations, right? The problem could be our expectations. The problem could be when, how we respond to when our expectations are met. But that produces a tension, a frustration in our lives. And this seems to be like these big reasons, right? I'm right, or they're right, I'm wrong, okay? And also just people not living up to our expectations seem to kind of be what, what like is the glue that brings these two characters that I want to talk about today from this story to Lasso. And that is Roy Kent and Jamie Tart. How many of you are excited that I'm finally going to talk about Roy Kent? Yes. So there was some of you that ever, yes, with, with all. If, you're, if you have not watched this show, you're like, I am at the wrong church. What is going on here? Can we get to Jesus? Okay. Um, I will say this. Uh, Roy Kent would not have the mouth that Jesus appreciates. Okay. Um, but that's okay. I'm not a moral theist, so that's all right. Uh, listen, so Roy Kent, Jamie Tart are these two characters that we experience all throughout the the three seasons. And they have this like narrative that, that, that goes alongside, that kind of exists within as kind of a subplot, right? And so Jamie is this young player in the league. He is arrogant as you can imagine. He is completely unemotionally, emotionally unaware, completely unaware of how his actions impact his team, impact his teammates. He just knows that he is good. He knows that he's one of the best goal scorers to probably ever going to play the game in the story. And he's young. And there's kind of this really funny scene. If you remember, if you've been, if you've been kind of following along in our series, when we talked about Keeley, and Keeley has this interesting scene at the beginning of the, the series where she's asking about whether you should be a panda or a lion. Remember that from a few weeks ago? Well, Jamie like comes into that scene and Ted asks him, panda or lion? And Jamie goes, Neither. Why would I want to be a panda or a lion? I'm Jamie Tart. <laughs> and Ted says, I don't think you know how emotionally healthy that answer actually is, Jamie. <laughs> right? So that's Jamie, right? Like kind of unaware, very young, very immature, filled with like his own prestige, okay? And his narrative arc throughout the whole journey is this, like from immaturity to from arrogance 
to this really humble, amazing teammate. And so that's like this scene, that's like his three, the three season arc in his world. Now, Roy Kent is, is a different type of character. Roy Kent is a legend. He's like the goat, right? So I hate to say this, and trust me, I'm not a New England Patriots fan, but he's like the Tom Brady of the soccer world in the show, okay? Now, some of you immediately tuned me out. You folded up your program, your talk notes. You were going to give in the offering today. Now you're not going to. I totally get it, okay? But that's, you just, that's the best I could do to give you, like, what is he? And he's at the tail end of his career. He's moved to this other team. And he's just in this space of trying to figure out, like, what life looks like if I am not on the pitch, right? And so his narrative arc is, like, one of complete emotional unawareness as well, right? But, like, what am I going to do with myself? How am I going to find my purpose? How am I going to go from being a frustrated end of my career, my body and my mind don't match up, what I think I should be able to do, I can't do anymore, to really becoming this coach who his personality stays true to who he is, but starts investing in others, right? And he finds his way. And what's interesting is, is Jamie and Roy's expectations of each other create major tension throughout the whole series, right? So Jamie grew up with Roy Kent as a hero, right? So there's a, one scene later on where his like poster in his room is of Roy Kent, right? And now he's playing on the same team. And we see that happening in professional sports. People who have long careers are saying like, I used to watch, you know, we'd always hear this, you know, again, sorry for the analogy, you know, Tom Brady, players always joining Tom Brady's team be like, I used to watch you when I was a kid, you know, a 20 year career that happens. And that's kind of the story. And so Jamie's kind of frustrated because this guy is old and he just won't go away. And he's trying to tell me what to do, right? And now Roy, on the other hand, right, he has an expectation of Jamie to be a team player, to use his gifts and talents to win championships, to not think of himself all the time. And so there's this, all this tension, right? And early on in the season, uh, in, this, in the show, I mean, in the story, this tension produces all kinds of fights and scuff-ups in the locker room, and there's this massive problem, right? And so it shows us, like, this is what happens when people come into our lives that produce tension. We don't like it. And they don't like each other. They don't see each other as anything but opponents. They have nothing to offer one another. They just frustrate each other. But here's the problem in our lives. We don't want the tension. We don't want people in our lives that make us so irritated and irritable. But here's the thing about it. Here's the problem. Tension itself is the catalyst for growth. I don't know that growth happens in our lives without tension. And until we experience a tension, a lack of frustration, it's really easy for us to just kind of settle in. And I want to look at a passage of Scripture today. See, I told you I'd get there. <laughs> Some of you just breathe for the first time. like, Okay. I want to look at a passage of Scripture from uh, this, this letter that we have in the New Testament, which is the second part of the Christian Bible, uh, called Romans. And I want to look at a passage that maybe if you've been around church for a long time, you've, you've heard it applied in one way, and I'm going to kind of make you think a little bit today about it in a different way, okay? Now, this letter to the Romans is really fascinating. We, it's probably, it was written, not probably, it was written by a guy named Paul. Um, out of all the letters in the New Testament, little Bible trivia for you, there are seven that most scholars, all scholars actually, say these were written by the historical Paul. So seven of, I think there's a total of like 12, something like that. And those seven, they say, this is it. And so the, so the letter to Romans is one of those authentic seven. Like we believe, scholars believe that this 
letter came from the hand of Paul himself, the, the, what we would call the radical Paul, because Paul, the original historical Paul, had some radical ideas. And the letter to the Romans is a letter that he wrote from probably a town called Corinth where he had started another church. And he probably writes this letter right before he goes on his final journey into Jerusalem and he gets arrested in Jerusalem. And now his goal of being arrested is to get in front of the emperor. So he wants to take this message of Jesus and what has put him in chains. And he wants to go to Rome, but he really wants to go to Spain. So like historically speaking, he, he's on his way to Rome, but he really wants to go to Spain because there hadn't been any kind of missional work in Spain yet, right? And so, so that's kind of the setting. Now, Paul didn't start the church in Rome. Sometimes people think Paul started the church in Rome. We don't really know who started the church in Rome, how it began, but Paul knew about it. He knew the importance of the city of Rome. So the letter to the Romans is unique in that it doesn't deal with any like specific community issues. So like in, in, in Corinth, there was all kinds of issues, like people sleeping with people they shouldn't sleep with, like all kinds of like, like backbiting and things happening. And so Paul's addressing very specific things. But the, the letter to the Romans becomes this kind of like theological treatise where he just kind of writes, he's introducing himself to the community, he's talking about, I'm going on to Spain, Paul's a fundraiser, you know what I mean, a man after my own heart. And so he's like setting the stage for, I'm going to go on to Spain and maybe you should support this work, you know, receive a collection. And he's explaining like why he sees the big picture, like his big idea of why Jesus is so important. Now, remember, Rome is the capital of Rome, right? Rome is the capital of the empire, right? It's where everything takes place, right? And so the central theme for this whole letter, and we have to understand this before we get into what I'm saying, is is this idea that the nature of the gospel for Paul and the work of Jesus is for everyone. It's for Jews and for Gentiles. Those were the two categories that Paul would have had for people. There were Jews and there were Greeks or Gentiles. There's Jews and everybody else. And what Paul's saying is that everybody's messed up. Everybody's made a mess of things. <laughs> we all have. But there is this way in which we can be reconciled and the world can be healed, can bring us all together. And it's this gospel, this Jesus, this message of Jesus and how he interprets that. And so he talks about faith and grace and justification and all these words that maybe you've heard of. Something really interesting happens in Rome around the time that Paul writes his letter. And that is the emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome. And this would have included all of the, like, Christian Jews as well, if I can use that statement. So you have to remember that the Jewish faith, there was no such thing as Christianity, okay? There were just really people who were Jewish who followed Jesus, right? And they said, this is my way of being Jewish. So when Claudius expels all the Jews out of Rome, right, out of this capital city, then he says, okay, listen, here's the deal. It's not just Jews that don't believe in Jesus. It was also the Jews that had started to follow Jesus. So they're leaving. So the Christian community is kind of decimated, except who's left? Non-Jewish people who decided to follow Jesus. So you now have this split that starts to take place in Rome, right? Where now you have these Gentile leaders who have bought into the way of Jesus, who are probably, they might not be citizens of Rome, but they're definitely Greek. They're definitely not Jewish by birth. And so they kind of take over and start leading the community of faith there. And so um, if you've ever heard of the, the names Priscilla and Aquila, has anybody ever heard of Priscilla and Aquila? Um, they're described in the book of Acts as like partners with Paul. They're described as Jews who had been expelled from Rome under this uh, edict that had come from the emperor, right? Now, 
about six years after that happened, that edict was rescinded. And so the Jews were allowed to come back. So you have to imagine like the setting, what's happening is you have Jewish Christians and, and or Messianic Jews and non-Messianic Jews. They're all kind of returning back to their homes. And they're coming back to find what? The Gentile leaders like running the church. <laughs> And so there's this tension that exists as the letter is coming into them, and probably even a tension that Paul maybe had heard about and was experiencing, right? So this community of faith, this is what's happened. Now in Romans, the letter to Romans, it's a big long letter. Romans, what we call chapters 12 through 14, is the most kind of ethical, ethical part of the book. It really deals with how you should treat one another now. So Paul lays out his foundation for like the beautiful work of Jesus faith, justification, Jew and Gentile coming together. We've all messed this up. We've all made a, 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 like problems with one another, but here's the deal. We can all come together now, right? Through this person and through the work of Jesus, right? Now, he starts in what we call Genesis, what we call Genesis. We're not going to Genesis. Romans 12, right? He starts now saying, okay, given all that stuff about Jesus, he gives this big therefore, <laughs> right? Therefore, he says in Romans chapter 12, what we call verses one through five, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, on the basis of God's mercy, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, or as a living sacrifice. And pause right there for a second. Weird for us, right? It's, unless you grew up in church, then you're used to that language. But if you're kind of new to the whole faith thing, you're like, living sacrifice. Like, we don't sacrifice things anymore to gods. I don't know if you know that or not. Like in our American Western world, we just don't do that. But this would have been very familiar because, right, this is Rome. This is the capital city. This is where the, the, the emperor cult is, is at its height. There's all kinds of sacrifices happening to all kinds of gods, including the Christian God, right? There's all kinds of things that are taking place there. So Paul's saying to them, hey, offer your bodies who you are as a living sacrifice. He says, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship, Right? So Paul's saying, hey, the, the thing that is reasonable to you, given what Jesus has done for, the, for the, what Paul would call like the, the salvation of all, right, for the inclusion of all, is to offer yourself wholly and fully to that reality, right? And he says, listen, this idea is if you're going to follow Jesus, to present your body, that language was about the whole self, the whole self, okay? So it's not like, oh, we just present this, this sacrifice to keep the God happy, which was kind of the deal, right? So you have to think in antiquity, you went to the priests to keep the gods happy, and you went to the philosophers to learn how to live ethically. <laughs> Does that make sense? Like we put it all together theoretically, right? But in antiquity, you, you know, religion and the temple and the sacrifices was about appeasing the gods. And if you really wanted to learn how to live a good life, that was healthy for society, you went to the philosophers, right? Now we just kind of blend it all together. And this idea of a living sacrifice is what we would call a cruciform life. It's one of my favorite words. I'm going to get a big tattoo that just says cruciform, right? Who am I kidding? I don't like pain. I'm not doing that nonsense. Where are my tattoo people in the house? Raise your hand. I'm nice and high. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. <laughs> Y'all are great. So this cruciform life, and that is a life of, of dying and rising. And this is really to follow Jesus is to live into this idea of living a cruciform life, that there's death and there's resurrection. It's a beautiful metaphor, death and resurrection. So think of things like the death of arrogance and the resurrection of humility in our lives. Think of it as the death of anxiety and a resurrection of faith. That's not 
to say that if you feel anxious, you're not a Christian or you somehow don't love God, right? But there is a peace that goes beyond all understanding when our hearts and our minds are guarded in Christ Jesus, right? So there's the death of vengeance. We talked about vengeance in week one of this series, and there's a resurrection of love for enemy, right? Of trusting that the universe works things out. And so that's what Paul's driving home, is you have to actually live dead, <laughs> And then something beautiful happens in our lives. And so he says this. So what I mean by this is this cruciform life, this, this way of resurrection, this, this idea that I can offer my whole self as a living sacrifice rather than worrying about all the sacrifices in the temple. The real one is myself. He says, here's how you do that. Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind. Now, mind is code word for a way of seeing reality. Okay? So the mind isn't just your thoughts, like, oh, I have bad, impure thoughts. I need to... Re no. It's the whole way of seeing. So Paul is saying your reasonable act of worship, right, is living this life, this sacrifice of, of having your mind renewed and restored. And there's a tension that existed, right, in Rome between the domination system of the world, Rome, and how they organized and how they saw things, the, the peace of Rome, let's say, and the vision of Jesus for the world. So that's in deep tension. And renewing of the mind is a fancy Bible word for saying, change your mind. I wish it would have said, free your mind. That would have been way better, because then I could sing that song, you know, free your mind. Because <laughs> that's really what Paul's saying, right? Wouldn't that be great to just have Paul up here singing that song, right? <laughs> Rest will follow. All right, so, but that's what he's saying, right? I mean, that's it. That's why that song's so perfect, because we just know intrinsically, oh, that's true. <laughs> How many of you know it's super easy to change your mind, though? It's not. It's hard. Things get ingrained in us, a way of seeing, a way of being, a way of understanding the way life should be. That's tough, and that's challenging. But here's the thing. Changing our minds is what? It's a sign of growth. It's a sign of growth. When we can actually just change our mind, when we can look at data, when we can look at the world around us, when we can look at facts and we can just say, oh, okay, I know better now. <laughs> I didn't know better. Now I do. Now the Bible word for growth, okay? The Bible word for growth is transformation, okay? So fancy word transformation. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind is grow through the changing of your mind. I think if we were to just like put that in everyday normal language grow by allowing the Spirit of God, a cruciform life, to change the way you see the world, right? And why is that important? Paul goes on and he says this, so that when you have this new way of seeing, when you're living this cruciform life, when your life is this act of worship, you will discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the ultimate reason for growth is to improve your way of seeing and being, so we grow so that we see the world more clearly, so that we see what is going on in our own hearts and in our own lives more clearly. So that transformation that comes through a living sacrifice. Remember, Rome, ground zero for imperial theology, right? Ground zero for Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. This belief that peace had come to earth through the programs of the emperor, and that was the Roman way of seeing and the Roman way of being. And what Paul is saying is what Jesus reveals to us is a different way of seeing and being. And you have to have your mind changed. You have to see the dangers of that domination system. You have to see the dangers of this idea of peace through power and violence, which is why I think right now 
So many of us who are following Jesus have such deep tension around what's happening with Israel and, 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 and saying, wait a second. Like, there has to be a way to hold the tension of not saying, oh, yeah, let's just kill more people. Right? There's a tension there that says the way of power and might and violence. I have to have a renewed mind that says I can't just go, well, I stand with Israel, so kill whoever you want to kill. There's a tension there that I think mature people can hold and peacemakers say, wait a second. Like I, I have friends who are Palestinians that live in Bethlehem and they, have, they in no way, shape or form support or think that what Hamas did is in any way, shape, or form healthy or a right choice or solution. And so there are widows and orphans being created every day and without any regard to nationality. But that way of being that just says power, destruction, death, more and more violence, it's just this cycle. And so there's this space that goes, gosh, my mind has to be renewed to the complexity of that. And that it's not just enough to say, I stand with this nation or that nation. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. There's nothing wrong with saying, I denounce and say the acts of violence are completely inappropriate. They're evil and they need to be restored. But when my faith becomes a tool to justify the death of people created in God's image, that is a problem. And I recognize that if me saying that up here can cost attendance. But I don't know how else to live in this true pattern of the difficulty of following Jesus into a space that says, I can't just stand up and say, more violence, wipe them out. Jesus is going to come back. These are all this. I just don't believe that. I think we leverage that to justify our violence. And that's why in another 10 years, somebody else will be standing up saying, oh, look, this is the reason why Jesus is coming back. And we misinterpret the book of Revelation. And we do all this stuff. And it's just a cycle of violence and violence. Our minds have to be renewed to see the world differently and to exist in a different pace. And without growth and transformation, we will never be able to see through the lens of love, only power, only violence. And that's, that's what we, we see every day. So Paul goes on and he says, for the grace given me, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, right? Each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. So what's happening here is Paul's saying humility is the starting line, not the finish line for growth. <laughs> How's that one for you? Right? If you really want to grow, if you want to have your mind changed, we have to learn how to be humble before, because without humility, we'll never change our minds. Without humility, I can never say, oh, I once was blind, but now I see. But humility is that starting point. So now here comes the big question. With humility as the foundation, right, for transformation, what Paul's saying here, how do we experience transformation? How do we experience growth, right? Now, this is where we get back to Roy Kent and Jamie Tartan. You're like, gosh, Ryan, it took 20 minutes to get there. Hang in there with me, okay? So Paul's saying, you got to grow. You got to see the world differently. You live at the center of, and the height of Roman imperialism. It, you've been indoctrinated with power as the way to peace and violence as the way to peace. You got to think differently. You got to have your mind renewed, transformed, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, don't think of yourselves more high. Now, how's it going to happen? I think this is fascinating, Paul says. For as one, it seems so weird. For as one body, we have many members, and not all the members have the same function. 
And some of you have been around church long enough, you're like, oh yeah, this is where now they start to recruit me to teach in Sunday school, and they start to recruit me to be an usher, and they start to recruit me to be on the music team, because what? Because we who are many are one body in Christ, right? And individually, we're members of one another, and so church members have gifts and talents, right? Can the eye say to the foot, I don't need you, right? That's a different place where Paul says that. But in your mind, if you've been around church long enough, you're like, that's what this passage is about. But is it really... Is Paul really worried about getting you to sing in the choir? I'm not saying that's a wrong use of the scripture. Because I think the beauty of scripture and why it's so inspiring is that we can apply it in different ways. But can I maybe bring us to a little bit more impactful way of thinking about this? So Paul's gone through and said, listen, you got to be humble. You got to be transformed. There's one body in Christ, and we're all members of one another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering, the teacher in teaching, the encourager in encouragement, the giver in sincerity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. I think Paul's making an argument for the necessity of interacting and appreciating diverse people in our lives and how that changes us. I think he's building an argument that says the body of Christ is beautiful and wonderful because we get it. We get that you have to be different. Now, here's the thing. Do you think that the prophet felt tension with the encourager? Like, I bet you these two people did not like to be in the same room together. Right? The prophet who's like, get it right. You are evil. Your actions are evil. God wants justice in the world. How could you possibly keep for yourselves, right? There's this prophetic voice that calls people to the justice and the righteousness of God. And then you have the encouragers like, you're just beautiful. You're so wonderful. It's good to have you here today, <laughs> right? And they like, I, I'm telling you, they don't get along all the time, right? Do you think the leader feels no tension with the compassionate one? The leader who's like, Let's get on our horses and go. We got places to be. We got things to do. We got seats to fill. We have lives to be touched and changed and transformed. There are hungry people that need to be fed. There are those in prison that need to be set free. Like, let's get on with it. And the compassionate one is like, I'm just so sorry. Let's just pray. Let's just pray together. Let's pause. You don't need to be so upset about the injustices of the world. Your privilege, I know you don't understand you have it. So let's just all take a breath together. The leader's like, come on! <laughs> so frustrated. Of course they clash. Of course they live in tension. But what? They need each other. They need each other. Proverbs 27, 17 says this. Iron sharpens iron, and one person sharpens the face of another. All the promise keeper men from the 90s are like shaking right now. You're like, please don't ever use that verse again, right? No, listen. It's beautiful, though. It's so true. Our differences sharpen each other when we're close enough to clash. You got to clash. If you don't clash, there's, there's no way you're going to get sharp. Y'all know what a honing rod is? It's a tool to sharpen knives. Like they go, right? If you ever go to like, I've been watching TikTok. Y'all know what TikTok is? How many of y'all waste too much time of your life on TikTok? Come on, I know we all do, right? I, I've been watching, like, they, they do these, like, big steaks, and they come out, and they, and they cut it off, and they slice it up. I'm like, I can do that, you know? But this, this honing rod, it's made of steel, 
or diamond or ceramic, something very tough, and it realigns the, the blade's edge it is what it does. It works by straightening or uncurling metal that's become like folded. It's become blunted. And so it actually just kind of like rebends. That's what a, a honing rod does. But then there's this thing called a whetstone. And a whetstone is different, right? A whetstone, unlike the honing rod, a whetstone doesn't bend and realign the edges. It actually creates a new one. It actually takes the blade. And when that blade is ground against that stone, it's actually removing what's been bent and creating something brand new. So it takes the dull portions of the blade and it makes that surface sharper, clears away the dull section. So it's not just like reforming it, it's actually creating something new. And I think that's such a beautiful picture of what those people in our lives that frustrate us so much, they do to us. You can't sharpen iron without tension. You have to have the friction between the two objects. Like I can set the knife close to the whetstone and leave and come back 10 minutes later and nothing has happened. You gotta have the tension. Without that friction, without that tension, there's no sharpening, there's no growth. So here's what I don't want you to miss. Here's the point. Growth in our lives requires authentic relationships with people who are wired differently than us. We have to give the space for people to be who they are and we have to have the space for ourselves and we have to be in relationship because here's the thing, these relationships, while they frustrate us, they can also surprise us. If we stick with it, if we have the mind of Christ, they can surprise us. And that's what I think is beautiful about Roy and Jamie. They serve as this beautiful picture of a relationship that transformed both of them, not as mentor, mentee, but as peers, as people who clashed, peers in very different places in life, but shared a common, some common things. They both were ambitious. They both played professional sports at a high level, right? They're both dealing with a deep fear of sorts, right? I mean, Jamie has this deep fear you find out in the story of like his relationship with his father, disappointing him, his father and the way his father treated him. Like there's this massive tension there. Roy's fear of like, who am I, right? Who am I outside of, of playing on the field, on the pitch? Like, what am I gonna be? his fear of his future. Do I have anything to offer outside of being this like footballer? What do I do? And towards the end of season two, we have this powerful scene that becomes kind of like the moment that defines what the relationship of the two of them is and will be. The team has traveled to Manchester City to play this uh, in this tournament. They're, they're, they're trying to move forward. It's Jamie's former team. Jamie's father's at the match. Right? So there's all kinds of emotion involved there. Jamie's very anxious about it. He's coming back to his home team. And unfortunately, the Greyhounds, the team that they play for, are just crushed. <laughs> they lose 5-0. Like, it is awful. And after the game, we find the team in the locker room and the coaching staff. They're all in the locker room, and the atmosphere is very sober. It's somber. It's kind of quiet. People are talking. And all of a sudden, the security guard announces to Jamie and says, hey, uh, Jamie, your father's here to see you. And you can tell Jamie's like, I don't know what to do with this. But he says, okay, let him in. And, and his father kind of enters in and he's intoxicated and he's like super obnoxious and jovial. He's taunting the team for their loss. And then he kind of aims his venom right at Jamie. And he starts kind of laughing at him and he's mocking him, pretending to cry and teasing him. And he's 
saying things like, oh, there he is, there he is, my son, my own flesh and blood, poor Jamie, in front of everybody, just taunting him. And he goes on to criticize his play, question his loyalty to the team. And you see, like, they show Jamie's teammates and the coaches just like, nobody really knows what to do. Everybody's uncomfortable. And his father then just kind of gets right up in his face, and he tries to play it off. Oh, I'm just teasing you. And, and he asks for a favor, and he says, hey, Jamie, just, will you just get my friends past the security so they can take some photos on the pitch? And, and Jamie just kind of not making eye, eye contact just says, you know, I'd rather not. And he says, come on, it's no big deal. Don't be a baby about it. They just, they'll only be a minute. And he just looks at him again, makes eye contact and says, I'd rather not. And then Jamie's father begins to taunt him again, calling him names. And Jamie just kind of stands his ground and he says, don't speak to me like that. Father gets in his face, starts taunting him like he didn't hear him. Like, what'd you say? And he says, don't speak to me that way. Three times he says it, don't speak to me like that. And his father presses more and more, belittling and shaming Jamie in front of everyone. Don't talk to me that way. And finally, Jamie just tries to turn away, tries to get away. And the father grabs him and in front of everybody, pulls him around. Don't you turn away from me. And Jamie, just filled with shame and anger and hurt, just punches his father, lays him out right on the ground there. And he's just standing there, and you can tell he doesn't know what he just did. And his father gets up and he tries to go after Jamie, but Coach Beard in Coach Beard fashion gently removes him, banging his head against the door on accident. <laughs> like, oops, you know. <laughs> and you have this beautiful moment where Jamie's just kind of left there in shock. And he's, it's, a, it's an amazing scene. And he's standing there and he's, he's just, he doesn't know what to do. Nobody in the room knows what to do. He's shaking, his emotions are raging, and the room is just silent. And the camera pans over to Roy, who's watched all of this happen. And Roy, who's seen the whole incident, without hesitation, walks directly at Jamie, and he hugs him. He just hugs him. And at first, Jamie just stands there, and his arms are down, and he is, he's looking away he doesn't know what to do. And then he just breaks. And the tears start to flow. And he grabs Roy. And they just hug in the locker room. And you, they pan into Roy's face. And you see Roy's eyes watered up. Just like holding and understanding. And in this moment of deep compassion, these two move from being rivals to being allies. Right? Certainly throughout the story, their relationship is complex and it's frustrating and they have their personalities, but they're no longer opponents. And it's so beautiful because both have grown enough to see their need for one another. And these two have sharpened each other and they've both now been vulnerable. And Roy's act of compassion shifts the entire relationship from pure antagonism to this complex friendship where they kind of understand each other and they kind of appreciate each other. And it brings us to this really beautiful truth for our everyday normal lives. The compassion turns opponents into allies. Those people that frustrate us so much, compassion can turn them into allies because we can recognize we need them in our lives. So here's how I want to encourage you. 
Don't run from the people who challenge you. Don't run from them. Have a renewed mind that recognizes and sees this beauty. I want to encourage you, don't run from people that disagree with you. Don't create that tension in that space, but recognize it's in that moment that you can act with compassion, that you can see the world differently, and you can recognize that those people are who you need most in your life if you're going to grow. To be surrounded by people who yes you, to be surrounded by people that only think like you, to be surrounded by people that just bring you joy will never take you to the next level. It's only in the tensions. And always remember that opponents aren't enemies. This is one of the like, horrible things that has happened through our political rhetoric, is we went from having political opponents to having political enemies. Opponents are not enemies. And so when you're in this relationship with a person who has all this tension, right, ask yourself this question, how can this relationship sharpen me? How can it sharpen me? How can it reveal a bit of who I am? How can it reveal who I want to be? And how can it reveal who I don't want to be? How can this relationship reveal some things about myself? And at the end of the day, when we exist to become sharp people, <laughs> when we recognize the need for that person who exists in a totally different frame of mind than we do, whose values are different, but we recognize I need them to sharpen me. I need them because I might not be perfect, that if I just scapegoat them, if I push them out, I'm no different. When we start to realize that, we become these sharp people. And here's the thing. Sharp people grow in their ability to cut through the, you can, whatever word you want there. We'll use the word nonsense to keep it PG. But sharp people can just cut through it. When we say that, oh, that person is so sharp, what are we saying? Well, we're praising them for their ability to notice and to hear in a unique way, to understand and to react quickly, right? That's a sharp person. We need more sharp people that can cut through the nonsense and the noise of this world to recognize that we can have opposing views, but we don't have to be enemies, that that person can sharpen me, but there's got to be that clash. And I can have that clash in a way that's different because I'm grounded in the peacemaking path of Jesus. And so we're going to have communion here in just a moment. And as we do that, I just give you a couple things to think about. What's God inviting you into today? As you receive communion, as you think about how this relationship with God through the person of Jesus can strengthen us to do difficult things, <laughs> can strengthen us to, to not push away the frustrating people, like just some things to ponder in this moment. Maybe God's inviting you to stop avoiding that person who frustrates you at work that can sharpen you. Maybe it's to recognize that opponents aren't enemies. Maybe you bought into that rhetoric that's just so consumed our culture. Maybe it's to send a thank you note to a person who sharpened you. That person that you just, oh, and you realize, I just need to thank them because they make me better. They make me sharper. So I invite you to stand as we have a few moments here, a couple of songs, just to pause, be together in this moment, to not be in a rush. I want to encourage you during these moments to hold the bread and the cup and just close your eyes and listen. You'd be surprised what happens when we just pause and you might want to sit. You might want to pray. You might want to think. You might want to 
journal something. If you're new, if you're a guest, if, if this communion Eucharist bit is not part of your tradition, uh, you're invited to, to experience it with us today. These are symbols that remind us that our strength does not come from ourselves, but comes through God. And in the Christian tradition, we do that through these symbols of the body of Christ broken and the blood of Christ shed for us to remind us that the peacemaking path of Jesus always leads to a death of self and a resurrection of something new. And so we take this as a reminder, as a metaphor of God's love for all of us, the universal nature of that. And, the, and I think it's a reminder that the presence of God that is such a mystery is so intimate and close with this that we actually kind of ingest it, that it is a reminder that we live in this. So you're welcome and invited. There's no class to take, no paper to sign, nothing like that. But just, to, it's a mystery we, we walk into. And so during this next song, I invite everybody, there's tables around. Please notice if there are those who are less mobile than you um, and maybe they're not at a table, would you serve them as well? and uh, make this accessible, that would be wonderful. And then we'll come back. We've got one announcement, our blessing, and we can go enjoy the fact that we don't have to watch the Broncos lose today. <laughs> the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you so that you might find joy in those that frustrate you the most.